The future is bright with promise because you're in it. And my word to you is don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give in. It is yours to make. And those who come after you will be very grateful for your witness and what you have done. The voice you just heard belongs to the Reverend Peter J. Gohm speaking to Harvard University in a 2010 keynote address on Harvard's transition to a more diverse community. Distinguished faculty member for four decades, senior minister at Memorial Church in Harvard Yard, Reverend Gomes is remembered fondly for his spirited take on the world and serving as a moral compass for the community. I am Amy Montemiro with Harvard Divinity School, and this is Divinity Dialogues, conversations on faith, purpose, and bearing witness. Today, we continue our series of special edition interviews with this year's Gomes Distinguished Alumni Honorees. Each year, the Alumni Alumni Council honors the legacy of Reverend Gomes by recognizing graduates whose excellence in life, work, and service pay homage to the mission and the values of the Harvard Divinity School. From investigative journalism to intersectional poetry to Buddhist ministry and bioethics and medicine, this year's honorees bring the Divinity School's vision, working in service of a just world at peace across religious and cultural divides, to fruition. Each week in June, we'll hear the stories of our honorees. This week, we'll hear from Dr. Omar Sultan Haq, who earned two degrees from Harvard, among others, a master's of theology degree from the Divinity School in 2004, and an MD from the medical school in 2008. Dr. Hawk is a physician, social scientist, teacher, and philosopher who studies big questions ranging across medicine, religion, and bioethics. A production note, this interview took place in April 2021 in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Hawk and I met over Zoom to avoid travel and practice good public health measures. And to get us started, can you say a little bit about your relationship with religion and or spirituality, and particularly the role it may or may not have played before you joined the Divinity School community? Sure. Well, I guess I'm a uh, person who most of my life I was uh, an atheist or naturalist in terms of my ontology and metaphysics, and meaning, you know, I thought that science was sort of the, the, the royal road to truth and uh, nature was all there is. And I, I kind of you know, was was pretty into my studies. Uh, I studied neuroscience in college and also philosophy of religion, and then went to medical school here at Harvard and started studying more experimental social sciences. And I, looking back, I thought scientism was true in some sense, that natural science was the, the way to have reliable knowledge and that maybe even the social sciences and humanities would be subsumed as branches of this, uh, sort of in the vision of uh, E.O. Wilson or my advisor, Stephen Pinker at the time, somewhat of a reductionist, I guess. But I started thinking over time, I, I went and did a, a doctorate in um, philosophy and religion and started seeing, studied specifically the, the, the philosophy of naturalism and started thinking that there's some cracks in the, in the ice there, that uh, there, there had to be some non-naturalistic premises uh, that were snuck into humanism. For example, the belief that we're fundamentally persons that, that um, all of our, our mental and uh, moral and aesthetic properties could it be reduced to the description given in physics. Let me think what else. I mean, the fact that we have human dignity, that we have human rights, those are not things you examine, um, you know, if you dissect a person. Our moral equality, uh, our fundamental moral equality, that's not based on our physical 
interchangeability, the obligations we have to disadvantaged persons and so on. You know, many, many um, ontological as well as moral premises that I felt were not easily justified in, as a naturalist. And then I started, I was, a, I was a physician as well later on, and there was a whole journey there that, that intersected with my, with my studies. But the Divinity School was a, a wonderful place where I, I launched into the philosophical and ethical dimensions of all of this. And now, were you a practicing physician before you came to the Divinity School? My philosophical and theological studies were interspersed throughout my scientific training, but I was not yet an independent attending physician at the time. All right. Thank you. And we'll be asking you a few more questions about your, your uh, career as a physician, among other things, uh, coming up in a bit here. So one thing we wanted to ask you about, uh, people can be surprised when they learn that the Divinity School is a non-sectarian, multi-faith organization. Frankly, you, you don't even have to be religious to attend. Um, and, and our student body represents approximately 30 different religious traditions and denominations each year. What is something else that may be surprising about the school? Yes, definitely true that uh, it's a very unique place. And I, I think the biggest thing that, that it meant to me in, in along the direction that you describe is a place where you can really explore any of the dimensions of, of values and spiritual traditions and even outside of those. I mean, there's a whole track for humanists and secularists. It's, it's a place for serious philosophical and ethical study. And I particularly just enjoyed the time being able to reflect on those things. And I, I thought of it as just sort of a detour, but it really became a, um, a main highway in my life. Excellent. Shifting a, a bit more broadly here, from your perspective, how can we as individuals find our way to lead with ethics and with compassion, and particularly when, when we're weathering difficulties? Mm. Yeah, I... Um... I did a talk with uh, the Religion and Practice of Peace program a couple of years ago. It, it reminds me of this question, how to find peace between different worldviews and things like that. But I think the first thing would be to in, engage people who we disagree with intellectually and morally. It's so easy for us to kind of find people who we agree with. I think that leads to self-censorship and, and lack of dialogue. And I think the Divinity School um, aims to open that, open the discussion up, uh, open inquiry, and uh, respectful, constructive disagreement between people, even if they don't see eye to eye, uh, acknowledging our own fallibility, that we, we don't know everything, we can learn from others, looking for common interests across difference, and moving those to the top of our agenda. For example, I know I saw a project on how people on the, the left and right focused on childhood poverty as a common cause they both cared about. And then I think also uh, looking to our common humanity as a way to, to motivate moral action can be very productive as opposed to all of the differences that however interesting they are. If you ask people to look at things from God's point of view, they actually, uh, in, rather than inflaming differences, it, it can actually extract people away from their ego and their own you know, environments. And then they're able to sort of um, imagine other people's perspectives a little bit easier because it's even shown in couples therapy that uh, if you ask people to imagine the other person's point of view and that person to imagine your point of view, it's not as good as asking how would a third party who cares about both of you, who's wise and, and benevolent, think about what you're saying and think about what your partner is saying? And what that does is it allows each person to not only think about the other person, but their, themselves, because often the problem is our, you know, our own egos getting in the way. So that's a kind of secular surrogate for thinking about it from God's point of view. And interestingly enough, that's been studied in like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it does increase the attribution of moral worth to, to outsiders. There's uh, another interesting psychological mechanism called 
motive asymmetry bias, which means that when we think of what's happening in a group conflict between two people or even two groups, we, we often assume that the other side just is doing what they're doing because they hate us and we're doing what we love and we're doing, we're trying to protect our own values and help our people. But if you get people to think about how the other group also is doing what they do for the love of their people or something that they, that is deeply valued for them. And also that we might be doing things also out of aggression and hate that reduces this uh, motive asymmetry bias. That's another one that's really cool. So you can see that at work in actual conflict. Third thing that's really interesting, I think, is the idea of sacred values. When you look at negotiations, you see the economists always say, oh, just offer money or you know, just give people uh, material goods and incentives to trade things off, like things that they value as sacred. This is where the, I think the religious studies and, and theological scholars and anthropologists understand things a little more deeply, that people will be willing to lose money to preserve sacred values or things that they find sacred. So uh, that's an, an often important part of, of negotiation and peacemaking. Giving symbolic gestures of difference across difference really helps people understand or kind of like softens people's hearts and, and, and so many other things like this. I think there's a, there's a huge source of knowledge in the social sciences that can be applied to these kind of questions. So this brings us to a couple of questions about your education and what your education has brought to fruition for you in your your day-to-day experience. You have a number of different roles that you play in the community, but the, the first one I wanted to ask you about, as a physician with a master's in theology, how do you foster respect for pluralism in your in your everyday life? I'm going to pause for a moment to answer a listener question, which is, what is pluralism? My word nerd caveat is that pluralism is a small word that encompasses a big idea. That said, one definition is the quality or state of being plural. And the key concept here is the existence of different types of people, beliefs and ideas within the same society. I'm a doctor. I have postdoctoral training in psychology and I'm board certified in the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, but also obesity medicine. Outside of the university, I, I run two clinics, both which I got interested in because of the my social science work is on stigma and dehumanization. And these two clinics focus on two stigmatized groups. One is uh, it's a depression clinic. The other one is a um, obesity clinic. Pluralism can arise for my patients, at least, and, and people I've, I've seen. I also worked in state hospitals in Rhode Island and Massachusetts for many years. There are different forms of life that just um, exist in, in, in human community that are, are different equivalent goods that uh, and blessings and gifts that people have been given. And helping people see those things will help them flourish and help, help us flourish as a community. There's also different forms of privileges and burdens in life. Uh, both with health and illness, disability status, access to care, socioeconomic benefits, and that um, having this healthy pluralism or healthy space for, for, for seeing all these good things in life and also difficulties in life that are not distributed randomly or equally is not a form of relativism or nihilism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can still uh, bring a kind of normative filtering of what's good and bad, even if we, if we, uh, if we still see that there are different ways of living in the world and being in the world for whatever reason. And I think you were just starting to get to my next question, which is, can you tell us a bit more about the barriers to to fostering pluralism? Or frankly, if you wanted to take it into um, the 
this idea of human flourishing, if you wanted to take it into that space, how do you use what you learned at the divinity school to overcome these barriers? Yeah, I, I think that I primarily, even though I'm a physician and, um, you know, teacher and, and a researcher and, and other things, I'm in my heart, really a philosopher type of person. So I try to, I think of these questions philosophically. And I think of the, the COVID uh, pandemic recently, um, I, I, I think that's a good, good lens to look at a lot of these questions. So for example, uh, I was working on a, on a project on how to, how to preserve the Americans with Disabilities Act and, and disability rights for, for patients access to care who have uh, disabilities, even though on a strictly rational accounting of things, one could make an argument for why uh, somebody who has some kind of disability should be not prioritized in medical caregiving. So that's kind of coming at it from a utilitarian philosophy. And I think a lot of the things I, I started learning in the divinity school, looking at more deontological approaches to morality, my clinics are, are start with the word dignity because the dignity of the human person is, is should be the center of our, our good society. And uh, in the case of coronavirus with persons with disability, this is a good example because reason doesn't tell you which way to go. There's like a pluralism of moral and ethical theories about how to solve this problem. But if you start with a lens of, of dignity and equality and human rights, you get a totally different answer to how should you interact with somebody who is going to need more time on the respirator, is going to take up more resources, as opposed to um, an alternative rationalistic or utilitarian framing that sees that person as a burden or as almost, you know, in its extreme can go towards like the, the way the Nazis did medicine. I did another piece on why doctors run the Nazi party, kind of analyzing some of these threads as well. But I think that's some, some of the things I picked up from in the divinity school, how to, how to see this real difficulty of pluralistic moral theories and deciding between them in a way that's fair and equitable. In addition to a medical career, you're as you mentioned earlier, you're a social scientist, you're a philosopher, a teacher, and a writer. And can you just tell us a bit more about how you've woven together these many areas of expertise, which include global health, anthropology, religion, social psychology, bioethics, and law. And tell us a, a bit more about how your degree from HDS comes to light in this intellectual constellation. Yeah, thank you. That's a big question. I, I need to trace those threads a little bit. I think of, for example, the, the question of, of why, why did physicians who are, you know, took the Hippocratic Oath, why would they join the Nazi party, you know, even though they seem to have an obligation to care for people? I think that's a good, that's a good example of how a society can go in one direction, unmoored from any dedication to the, the sacredness of an individual person. So I, I think that's, that's an example of something that I, I think I picked up. Uh, I think I got interested in the question of dehumanization also. In, in medical settings because, well, I also thought that, you know, going through residency and, and becoming a physician is dehumanizing in many ways. So out of that dissatisfaction, I tried to turn that into a scholarly question. And the way we objectify and animalize or infantilize our patients as well as each other and ourselves, I tried to schematize that into a, a theory and try to expand on that and, and apply it to different populations to understand how interventions could be designed to improve things. But fundamentally behind that is the belief that we fundamentally are persons to begin with, and that there is something sacred about our humanity. Because you wouldn't really be upset about dehumanization if you didn't think that there was something good about being human. 
and then there was not only something good but something sacred so that's sort of a theological premise that snuck into a lot of our humanism and i got interested in that question and tried to analyze it so that's the social science side of it the, the philosophy side of it is if you really think that there's nothing unique about humanity then you know we really have a hard time arguing for why we should allocate resources to us and not you know all the insects who are being killed in genocides in the forests right now there's not something different between me and the chair i'm sitting on not just in degree not that a really really complicated chair or a really really complicated alarm clock would eventually be me and would be conscious and would have moral properties you know that's also a form of dehumanization to objectify a person uh, thinking about that i i think there's something really deep about that and it, and and that that also inspired my interest in the question of dehumanization and you know it, it applies directly to disability rights and why would you prioritize the value of a person in a society in a hospital if they didn't have intellectual capabilities in the same way that uh, a neurotypical person would how do we really justify our care for for people who are not uh, flourishing in the in the in the way that would be valuable to a society and i think you know there's many theological accounts of why we have those obligations but there there's only one world view that i found didn't have an account of that and that was sort of the 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 naturalistic world view and that's what i that's how i got interested in these questions because that you know there was a disconnect between my moral experience as a clinician and sort of my world view as a naturalist or an atheist every day i was caring for people and, and just having this intuitive experience of doing good and and doing the right thing um regardless of what they looked like regardless of what they smelled like how much they, it cost to care for them across many differences and i i had i felt this disconnect between my moral experience of the world my belief in our fundamental equality and so on and the world view i was living in so i i think that might be a way to tie up some of my my intellectual and personal beliefs thank you uh, if, if we can go one more question on on that topic if you yeah. if you don't mind not every physician has the same training the same philosophical grounding so i i have to ask how how is it being out in the world doing the very hard work that you're doing especially in the midst of a global pandemic and having that that awareness with you that folks are sacred and and there is as you said there's this added layer of your understanding of your medical career yeah um you might ask yourself this question say you go to a hospital because you have an emergency or you go to your outpatient clinician what are they doing not in the sense of the mechanistic sense of how are they initiating pharmacology into your body or how are they operating on something but what are they what's the point of what they're doing what are they actually aiming to do with you not just with your body but with your whole life and all of your relationships that's kind of a question we don't ask in in medicine but if you come at it from uh this philosophical or moral or spiritual tradition you have to ask and so i do think about that a lot and it's really the question of what is what is human flourishing what does it mean to flourish as a human being and oftentimes our definitions are are mechanistic they are dehumanizing and they they just try to bring a person to uh species typical functioning or something like that and it ignores all the Uh, existential and moral and spiritual dimensions of the person um, and without that teleological account you know teleology means a telos a purpose and end for the human person without that teleological account of of what the point of medicine is and what the point of a human life is we really can't figure out what is the right intervention for the right person at the right time in the right context 
And so I, I, I think of that all the time, uh, both in, in all the work I do, what's, what's missing in someone's life, but also what is something that we can help bring to them in caregiving beyond, uh, beyond just sort of the protocol of what, what medication might be indicated. For patients with depression, for example, a lot of the psychotherapy is, is very pessimistic. It comes out of uh, the Freudian antipathy towards the spiritual. And one analogy I like is, is that uh, it describes us as two-dimensional stick figures, meaning um, you, you've ever seen one of those animations where there's a two-dimensional um, account of people interacting and then all of a sudden it becomes three-dimensional because a lot of our psychotherapy and, and social science and medicine is, is two-dimensional, meaning it, it mistakes us for stick figures even though we have a vertical dimension. It ignores the vertical dimension to life entirely. But nonetheless, our patients are vertical creatures. They live in three dimensions. But we as clinicians talk in two dimensions. And so that disconnect manifests all the time. Someone's depression could be entirely because they can't find forgiveness in their life in some way. And that, that, that touchy-feely thing. Now in studies, we know it changes gene expression. It changes blood flow to the brain in different ways. It changes all kinds of stuff in your, your neuro, neurochemistry. But, you know, someone starting off as a Freudian would never think of that kind of stuff. They wouldn't really put that. They would think of it as some kind of unconscious defense mechanism or some kind of um, epiphenomenon to something more basic, which is just pleasure seeking. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the goal of life for the for a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers was just we're just animals and we're just here to, like, find pleasure and avoid pain and then die. And um, as Freud says, our, the goal is to go from hysterical misery to everyday unhappiness. There's nothing... There's nothing beyond that, really. There's no concept of, of, of joy and flourishing and, and purpose and meaning and, and value. For the Marxists, value is an epiphenomenon of dialectical materialism, the superstructure of, of material forces. Those are abstract-sounding ideas, but they manifest in people's lives in very concrete ways. Mm-hmm. When, somebody, when somebody dies and their spouse dies and they're trying to understand how to, to move past that event. If we only play our piano with a couple keys, we're not going to, we're not going to make that symphony in life. And that's what our patients are living in a symphony that they lost. And we're giving them only a couple keys to play with. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many more metaphors I have under my, (laughs) there's so many ways to say it. That's great. So I'm I'm hearing Freud could have taken a class in epigenetics and maybe human flourishing and would have learned a thing or two. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I would be remiss if I didn't point out you didn't learn all of this from Harvard, or at least what you learned from Harvard may have been validated by another university. Is that right? <laughs> right. Yes. I also <laughs> went to Yale, Yale Divinity School and I did a master's degree there. I focused on metaethics and uh, God and morality. And I was really interested in the question of what difference uh, it makes to have God in or outside of morality. Does it add anything? Does it take anything away? And so I just spent a whole year thinking about that. I guess I can say, yeah, it made me more interested in the idea of human dignity, uh, the basis of our moral equality, which is something that John Locke, for example, wrestled with as well. And he thought that you needed some kind of spiritual dimension to explain our moral equality. It cannot be based on some cognitive capacity because people vary in that. Uh, there's people get head injuries or they are, are born with more or less of the whatever capacity we think is the grounds of our, our political equality. And then I think moral endurance is another feature that I, I studied. How do we make our moral commitments realizable in the long term? How do we endure through hardship? I think there's something else that I, I got into at that time, which is something that Immanuel Kant 
discussed and struggled with as well. How do we make doing good coincide with our own flourishing? How do we make, um, I think as the psalmist says, virtue and happiness meet? How do we flourish and, and also be virtu virtuous? Because many times people flourish by being bad. Bad people flourish and good people do not flourish sometimes, often. And sometimes doing the right thing means you don't flourish in the short term. So how do we solve that problem? Um, Kant thought that we had to postulate some God or supernatural realm to help account for the assistance we believe we will find. And whether that's a self-fulfilling prophecy or it's self-metaphysical type of help, I thought that was really interesting because it's a, it's a problem. If you know that virtue and happiness do not align, I think it makes you less likely to be virtuous. And so there's a unique contribution you get from theology or, or the spiritual realm. So anyway, I got, I got really deep into some of those questions. I'm still on the Harvard team, I think. <laughs> we won't make you choose here. That's all. <laughs> and then coming back to your time at Harvard, uh, before we wrap up, I, I know that you had the honor of knowing Peter Gomes when you were when you were here, if there's anything you'd like to share, a story or a memory, um, we wanted to give you some space uh, to talk mm -hmm. about your for a moment. Absolutely. I mean, what an amazing man. I, I first got interested in taking his class because everyone said he's an amazing lecturer and he's just a, a, a you know, profound speaker. And, uh, and then I kind of, I wandered into the class and I, I just shopped it for a while. It was the, you know, the, the big class he taught on, on the interpretation of the Bible. I just thought, well, even if I don't believe in, in, in any of this stuff, I got to like at least listen to this ma this maestro. And then um, I, I kind of got in, enraptured by it and I got engaged by what he was saying. And I, I really got interested in the questions, hermeneutical questions and the, the philosophical, theological questions. So I, I learned a ton. And then I, I even went back after I stopped being a, an, an atheist or a naturalist and I became a Christian. I, just, I went back and I reread his book and I, I got more out of it. Than I and I ever did before because when I when I was initially going through it I was more skeptical but I was interested in him but he really knew how to connect abstract ideas to to people's lives I guess as a pastor as, as a preacher I think he had had such a compassionate heart too and he he was intimidating at first when I met him and I, he would he would invite us to his house for tea and you know um, he he opened his doors to everyone and I always remember that class fondly because he also had the best sense of humor. And I, I still just, I just remember laughing a lot in the class, which I didn't expect to. Very, very wonderful. Thank you for the chance to remember him. Thank you for sharing. Well, and that leads us to our final question. So the Divinity School's focus can often be characterized as making a world of difference. What are one or two tangible ways that everyday folks can help bring this HDS focus to fruition? I think what the Divinity School does to inspire people as well as to do something different on the university is that it doesn't come out of this tradition that says that the university is only searching for essentially objective person independent knowledge that would exist even if everyone in the world in the world like didn't exist like died natural science knowledge for example so that that tradition comes out of scientism and positivism I think what we what we can do to help people make a world of difference is see the university as having an essentially moral purpose, not an abstract intellectual or positivistic purpose. So if the university exists to pursue moral ends and, 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 and you as a student, as an alumnus, you also exist 
to do good in the world. You're not just a modem or a computer that's here to download information as efficiently as possible and spit it to your neighbor. And I think one of the most important ends is truth seeking. This is in itself like a normative aim of life, but it's only one aim among many. We must also seek goodness and beauty and the transcendent dimension of life. But even if we, have, if we limit ourselves to truth seeking as our mission, then the truth that we would seek would include more than the truth of the natural sciences. It would include many other types of truth that are non-scientific knowledge. There is such a thing as non-scientific knowledge, moral, aesthetic, and religious knowledge. But then again, there's a danger as well. If we think of the university as existing only to pursue moral ends, we then cannot be too comfortable with the ends we decide to pursue. We, have to, we can't close off inquiry into what our ends are, the process of finding out how to achieve those ends is. So there's a danger of a monoculture or an echo chamber too. So I think there's dangers on both sides, but I think that's a great way to make a world of a difference. Many thanks to Dr. Hogg for his time, his insights on the many intersections of health and intellectual exploration and his care for human flourishing. And thanks to you for tuning in to this special episode of Divinity Dialogues. This podcast came together with the help of some remarkable colleagues, including Caroline Cataldo with her editing and producing expertise, Kristen Pont with her exceptional work with the Gomes Awards event, and folks across the communications and development teams at the school. We'll have a new episode coming out next week featuring an illuminating interview with Robin Cost Lewis, poet laureate and National Book Award winner for her debut collection, Voyage of the Sable Venus. You can find us on the HDS SoundCloud channel or subscribe to Harvard Divinity School on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you never miss a new episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about HDS and our amazing community. Until next time.